Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Craig Vassell, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listeners on the radio. We invite our audience to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Dave Deppen is a leader in green architecture with over 30 years of experience in innovative ecological design and people-friendly projects. He studied architecture and environmental psychology at Penn State. After college, he was on the founding staff of the Wright Ingraham Institute's Environmental University on the Colorado Plains. After a time in Portland, he moved to the Bay Area. Uh, also in the mid-70s, he worked for the country's pioneering ecological architect, Malcolm Wells, on the East Coast. And then here in the Bay Area, He's been a leader in, in many projects at the firm EHDD. These projects range from libraries to aquariums to master planning the Turtle Bay Discovery Park on the northern Sacramento River at Redding. Then he was vice president of Vanderine Architects in Sausalito, where he led landmark projects incorporating rammed earth, earth roofs, and advanced passive energy systems. He's, while at Vanderine Associates, he served as design architect for the project we'll see tonight. He currently runs his own green design and consulting practice based in the North Bay and works throughout the United States. The project we will hear about this evening recently won the first ever Livable Buildings Award from the nation's leading organization of building scientists. Dave? Who are we here tonight? How many are students? Great. How many are architects, designers, engineers? Great. How many are in otherwise involved in the green building field as consultants, as uh, in, other, in other realms? And um, how many here are, you know, you're, you're in the general public, you're just interested in this green building stuff? General public. Wow. I'm so glad you are here, because in a lot of ways, um, a lot of ways, this is um, hopefully going to benefit you, because any of you, actually anyone in this room, may be on a building committee, and the pro we're going to talk a lot about the process for this project, and it was a bit unusual, but there are lessons that can serve all of us in how to make uh, a, a really interesting project happen, some of the do's and don'ts. Well... The project we're talking about is the Kirsch Center of Environmental Studies at De Anza College in Cupertino. Um, anyone here from South Bay, that, down that area? Great. Um, and this project um, began as the idea of a dynamic teacher there, Julie Phillips, 
who a number of years ago knew that students had to be working in environmental studies in a green building. So students kept saying, you know, you teach us all these environmental values, but we're in windowless classrooms with toxic materials, and uh, it's just not computing. So um, Julie started with nothing, and her, her contractor husband drew up some plans for a very small wood frame building. It might have some recycling. Maybe that's all they ever could have. She gathered some other teachers, some other students, and at one point there was young lady, 20 years old, community college student named Sarah, who was on the student government and she ran with it. She kind of uh, pushed the effort through the student government that the student government of De Anza College allocated its own student funds. The students got so excited to make uh, a green building possible. Uh, and that was you know, particularly important because this is California Community College system, largest system of of higher education in the world, 1.5 million students, 108 campuses, a vast bureaucracy of which we can barely imagine. All the facilities are planned by outside enormous consulting firms or a bureaucracy in Sacramento. It is unthinkable that a small group of students and faculty would come up with the idea that they need a building and would pursue that. I mean, it was just blown off. This is, this is the Kurt Center as it was finished. We're going to go through the story of it. Now, the story starts in an area that Jack London called the Valley of the Heart's Delight. It's one of the most beautiful valleys in the United States. It had been before World War II. Today, it's a vast sprawl. Danza College is in the center of that sprawl. And Danza College is right here. This is the entire campus. And I want you to keep in mind that here's the central campus. And eventually this group was given an unbuildable area in the far reaches of the campus um, next to some tennis courts. And um, hopefully they would go away because it was, it was impossible to build um, on, such a, on such a tight site. So the, the students um, and Julie organized a committee and one of their first steps was to pull together their values and to do interviews for a design team. And um, the team that they, and this was um, Julie, um, Pat Cornelli was key, and there was an interdisciplinary group. There was mathematicians, there were uh, people in English, counseling, um, and students from many different disciplines. Um, again, it was unheard of that students be on a building committee because typically there's a few faculty in the building committee that say how big they want their offices to be and then it's taken care of by the experts. And they, they selected um, the team that was, um, the, sorry about that, the firm that um, um, I worked for, Vandrine Architects. BBN Architects was architect of record doing construction documents. Arup of San Francisco were the energy engineers in many different disciplines. DAS was structural engineer. And Don Aiken, just a, a wonderful pioneer in energy work, was our uh, energy guru. And I want to give photo credits because so many people were involved in, in, in providing photos and images for this. Though in the workshops to put together what is this building going to be, in addition to all the details of rooms and, 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 and the like, um, and some of the technical work, one of the things we focus on is called an essence statement. And, um, how do you put together in one short phrase the essence of what the building's supposed to be that applies both to the early planning and also informs the most detailed decisions that are going to be made during construction? How can you consolidate all that into one brief phrase? 
tell you what, if you can do that, you will have one of the most powerful tools possible for your project because it will give everyone a touchstone that you're always referring back to. So we worked on this through many workshops and finally came up with a building that teaches. And there was a longer version of that, a building that teaches about energy, resources, and stewardship. That helped us in early planning and then in construction meetings where there would be discussion of whether you know, a, a significant change could be done, even people who are not really interested in this project say, oh yeah, we have to do that building a teaches thing, and they'd be on board. This is so powerful, I can't um, emphasize it enough. And uh, I recommend it on every project. I'm going to take you through, through some of the messy parts of the process. There were literally scores and scores of drawings and workshops. You know, we saw that map of the campus, and north is up, which is going to make this way what direction? West, exactly. And students are coming from the main campus, and they're coming in this direction to come in. So this is a major way in. There's school buses and the like of people coming for projects here. They're coming in this way. So we're, we're, we're thinking about orientation of long east-west. We're thinking about doing this in a way that we, we kind of um, funnel people in in a way that feels natural. We're doing this in a way that people can see this entry from a long distance as they're coming. And naturally what we came to was two wings, a west wing which we wanted to be naturally ventilated and an east wing with larger classrooms that would be air conditioned but with a pretty advanced um, low energy system. And you can see how these, um, how these would progress. And these are all workshop drawings with people's ideas across the table. Um, at this stage in the project, um, Buddy Williams worked um, integrally through every part of it. And uh, Buddy would be writing up upside down, I'd be writing upside down, and, um, and it would move ahead. So this is, this is the first floor, and uh, there's larger classrooms, this very th thin wing on the west side. So we're going to remember that, the west wing and the east wing. Everybody want to keep, keep that in mind? And second floor, also west wing, east wing. And then fairly close to the end, this is not quite the final, the final layouts, but first floor, there's that entry, a public space, there's very large classrooms. All the seats in rows are something, a diagram we had to do for the state. One of the really cool things that the committee said is nobody is ever going to be in a row. And um, there's, there's all kinds of seating arrangements and different, um, uh, different ways for people to use the building. And just to give you a sense of, of towards the final site plan, again, students coming from the north into this direction. There's a plaza here they called Solar Plaza. And, and that, well, I want to give you a sense of sec uh, cross sections. This is, that, um, this is that west section, which is naturally ventilated. You see that squiggly line through the middle? So what happens when there is an allocation of money from bonds and, and then quite a bit of that's cut out? So we constantly were going back and forth through what we could afford in the, uh, in the square footage. And at one point it was three stories, and then it became two stories. But the, the, the basic concept stayed there. That's one thing I want to get across to you. In the building planning process, it's incredibly fluid usually. There may well be a fixed budget, but the program could change. There's a lot of things you're constantly trading off. And this is that, that east wing with the much larger classrooms that has the it has the access floor system that, um, where air is coming from below, and this wing is, is air conditioned. 
Now, one of the things we knew that was really important, um, the students kept saying um, there, there had to be all kinds of open breakout areas. And um, one of the students, particularly a young man named Cullen, he would jump up and down saying, you know, we don't learn in rows. We don't learn in classrooms. We want to be out in small groups. We want to have areas where we're seeing other students and the like. And the students were adamant that there be kind of public areas where their small groups are that are part of the circulation. Um, and people were overhearing what was going on in their classes, and, and, and the objections would come up. That's crazy. How can you concentrate? Now, this is being said to students who are on their phone, listening to their iPod, they're talking to their friends, and three other things at the same time. So there's no problem with these guys multitasking. And um, so we, we weren't sure what, what this um, area was going to be, and uh, in one of the workshops, Buddy just took down all these different names and the like, and then finally, um, Buddy came up with the term the max, that there's a central area in the building that um, is, is going to be called the max. And this is one of Buddy's early sketches for, this is a corridor. We were told that the taxpayer's value would be best served to have a six-foot wide corridor with doors on each side. And the students would, ha would, would not have it. This is a later rendering of what the activities in the max would be like. One of the things we ran up against was rules of the college and community college system. One of the rules for this college was operable windows are not allowed. And they're not allowed for a good reason, because the mechanical system uh, might not work properly if um, people open the windows and the mechanical system is, is just blasting air into a room that, um, where the windows are open. So we were told, you know, fine, you can, you can do this building, but no operable windows. And, uh, you know, you've got to pick your battles. And uh, do you think this was one that was important? You think the building committee said, there's going to be operable windows. And this took many months. Um, what finally happened was the president of the college, Martha Cantor, who, she just took this project under her wing. And um, she got uh, a, major, uh, a major donation from uh, Stephen Michelle Kirsch for, for part of the funding. And um, she, uh, somewhere in my files, I have a letter from the president of the college that says, this one building is allowed to have operable windows. That was enough for us at that point. Of course, you know, after this was done, everybody liked what this was, and that, that rule was changed. So energy was our big focus, right? Building a teaches about energy resources and stewardship. So in the recent research by the, the 2030 group, you know, buildings consume half of the country's energy. When, when, and they looked at research, the energy to make the materials, the energy in the construction process, as well as the, as the process center, as, as the energy for operating the building. So that was our enormous focus. Now, the very first thing we think about when we think about energy is orientation. Because if we get our window locations and our orientation uh, right with the sun, um, there, there's enormous advantages. Now, this is the cover of the major journal of college and university planning of the United States within the last year. And I, I just love this because the, the, the university building of the future has no sense of orientation. I mean, these are the people that plan colleges. Oh, the other thing, I gotta go back. The other thing I love about this is the little mouse hole that you go in to, to, to go into this. <laughs> So cardinal directions, this is where we always start. And you know, many people say to me, oh yeah, I know that stuff, the cardinal directions, I know we're supposed to pay attention to it. You know something, I study this every day. I work on this every day as I, as I look at buildings. How, how's the orientation working? What do they do? 
When I look around at new buildings, I don't see this very often, that it's paid attention to carefully. The most important thing you could possibly do to save energy and actually make the building feel really good. Just by taking that orientation with long side west, turning exactly the same building that way, 20% energy savings like that. So whenever people say to me, well, this green building thing, it might cost too much, that's, that is absolute baloney. And certainly there's going to be reasons why that orientation may make sense in certain cases. There's all kinds of other tricks you can use. But this basic stuff is what we've got to really focus on. And one of the main reasons is in the path of the summer sun rising in the east, very long, long path, right, June 21st and, and all through the summer, very long time the sun is facing west in those hot afternoons. And especially orientation for daylighting, we're, especially in college buildings, we're absolutely focused on daylighting because the largest use of energy in a college building is the lights. And if we can get free natural daylighting, particularly from the north side, it's indirect, it's, it's virtually glare-free, we don't have all the, pro all the problems of sun control, that's where we're far ahead. East side is, is kind of hard to do. South is really exciting because the low summer sun in public areas, we might want it to, um, to warm uh, public areas, and then we're going to do overhangs to, to cut out that sun in the summer. And then in the west, we're trying to avoid the west sun. And this building, because it's a building it teaches, we, we almost exaggerated how the elevations were done, what the south side, the west side, the, the north side, just to make them really clear teaching tools. This is the south side. It's an overhang for the second story. There's a series of overhangs and light shelves for the south side. So we're getting into public areas, not into classrooms, into public areas, winter sun, but we're cutting out summer sun. Then we go around to the, nor we go around to the north side. These are classrooms, large banks of glare-free windows, operable windows, with lots of sunlight into all the classrooms. There's some other windows on, on one particular area that are west-facing, so we made special shades for those, special awnings. And from the inside, one of the things I really like is these are Mecco shades, and they, you can see through them. And there's transparency is one of the ideas throughout this, that, that all, everything is set up that you really can know what's going on around you in the environment. So the, the public spaces are open to that sun, in the, especially in the winter, um, and then shaded. So they're, they're just bright and airy. One of the things that um, is really important is light materials. You know, if you're going to do master daylighting, having light materials inside, the, the project can't be turned over to someone who's going to do their own thing. You know, today's, per today's Thursday, and, and it's kinda, I'm in a purple mood. Um, having those light colors on the first surface that daylight hits is crucial. This is some of the other circulation in public spaces. This is um, an end of one of the max areas. Uh, and the photographer, you know, he, he put some of the lights on um, for the photography effects. This is the building that's open to the public. You all can go down there anytime at De Anza College. Um, I really encourage you to do it. Um, the lights are off. I mean, this is, this is just amazing, um, the feeling when, um, when you're in that calm. It's one of the classrooms. It's one of the labs. I've had college teachers come in, sit in that room from other schools, and just say, I don't know what it is about this room, but I'd give my eye teeth to teach in this room. 
I just feel so good. Think about it. There's no fluorescent lights on. It's just the calm of the natural light. Windows might be open. You get a sense of what's going on outside. Other classrooms with daylighting uh, and light from, light from two sides. Light from one side. It's kind of borrowed light from another side. This is my favorite area. It's, uh, it's an area um, right next to the second floor max. There's faculty offices ringing this and other rooms ringing the other side. This is a room that has no access to outside windows. So Don Aiken said, you know, we need a pop-up. And the pop-up just takes uh, part of the roof, pops it up, and there are a very narrow strip of windows to the south. There's even one to the west and to the north. The one to the west, they all have big overhangs on them. When you sit in this room, it's calm, and all through the day, the light changes because it's bouncing off of the roof, off of the overhangs, and slightly changing. I mean, you feel like you're outside. Another thing I want you to watch in one of the classrooms, these mecha shades, see how you get a sense of the outside world through them? They're working to cut down on light for projection. This was one of Don's other points, is always connect to the outside world, always connect to nature. Another tip on daylighting, things like, things like window frames are, are absolutely crucial because you don't want glare. If you have a dark surface next to that bright surface, your eyeballs go crazy. Are they adjusting for light? Are they adjusting for dark? So keeping these reveals and frames very light also is, is important. This is one of Arab's diagrams for that west wing. And there's, um, uh, in the winter, there's radiant heating in the floor. There's, um, there's, uh, there's ways to move around uh, air with, uh, with fans and the like. This is actually is all shaded because we don't want direct light right in on where students are working. And then in the summer, in addition to the ability um, to move air through with natural ventilation, one of the things that was brilliant they came up with was um, water that was already used and it, on its way back to a chiller, essentially called, called unfortunately, wastewater, is simply piped through the slab, essentially cool water, so we have this cool slab um, at no extra cost, and, um, and these rooms are um, the sense of the radiant heating. This is one of Arab's models of, of the energy modeling, and this is based on 96 degrees, right? It can be 96 degrees in that area in the summer, Let's open the windows and cool ourselves off with natural ventilation. So that's not going to work. So, uh, and they're looking at, well, if it was completely air-conditioned, oh, I can tell what these charts are. Engineers love these things. You see the green at the bottom. That's, uh, that's a very high percentage. And then there's a kind of low, red is bad. It's called percent of people dissatisfied. And this is one of the prime engineering tools for, for modeling buildings. So, you know, in the way in the engineering world, yeah, okay, fine. Everybody's happy if it's all air-conditioned, but we're not going to spend that money or that energy. Uh, and then to find there's a very high satisfaction with that radiant floor using the water that, um, that no extra money was paid for. This is one of my favorite things. All of the uh, piping and then all of the, the manifolds and the like are exposed um, so you can see how the, the pipes are going into the radiant floor system. Now remember, talked about the two wings. I'd shown you that west wing, which was a naturally ventilated one. So this one is which wing? East wing. 
And this one has large classrooms, large groups of people, right? Everybody's giving off a lot of heat. So air conditioning is a, is a really big deal. So this, um, this area uses um, what's called, an, uh, it's various names, an access floor system or, or underfloor system. Uh, in fact, we have a model of it in the back. If anybody wants to take a look in the very back table, there's, uh, there's some little metal pedestals and a concrete panel on top. You can take a look at that later. That's the system we have here. And th this is so cool how this works. This is widely used throughout the country. Um, not too much in, in school buildings yet. This is typical building air conditioning, which, uh, which we are in right here. And the, let's just say it's a summer condition where you're, you're bringing out uh, cool air and you have to exhaust it then back into the ceiling. So that air needs to be at a relatively extreme temperature and it needs to be at a fairly high velocity just to get it out in the room, churn it around a lot, and then it has to come back into the, into the duct system very close to where it came in. I mean, the physics of it are nuts. 99% of the buildings in this country are based on that system. This is what is so cool. This is the underfloor system. There are some ducts and some spaces to bring uh, conditioned air at a much lower speed and a much less extreme temperature. That air then generally wafts by people, picking up our odors and perfumes and the like, and lets it stratify at the ceiling where it's returned. Does this make sense? It's, it is so cool. I mean, it, it's, the other thing, the indoor air quality goes up immensely. There's one of those little diffusers in the floor. This guy is saying, you know, what's under that diffuser? And that's what's under it. In this case, it was 18-inch pedestal. And uh, by the way, all the wiring is under there, all the telecommunications. A lot of businesses are now using this because as they're moving employees around in teams and the like, in two years, this system pays for itself because they're not moving all the wires, they're not moving partitions and the like, um, or they're not moving ductwork, they're not changing the mechanical system. Um, it's, it's really flexible. And you've got to have a good company. You know, I we got this from, we used um, Tate Access Floors. There are so many companies that are knockoffs that took Tate's plan, sent them to China. What's coming back mm, seems to match it. Those companies are winning some bids. We, we take enormous efforts to make sure we get companies like that that have been in this field for 20 years because you don't want an access floor that you can imagine. You don't want it to move. You can go to this floor, right? We're gonna, you're all going to take a look sometime down at the College, and you can jump on it. I mean, it is just rock solid. This is one of my favorite things. Because there's both operable windows and there's a mechanical system, Arup came up with this very simple red light, green light. So every operable window has a, a little panel like this next to it. If the building energy computer says, you know, it's, um, it's, it's pretty darn uh, uh, extreme outside, um, I'm going to suggest everybody using the building that they close the windows. Or it might say, you know, it's pretty, pretty nice outside. This is a Mediterranean climate. Building, oops, the building system is going, to, um, is going to suggest opening the windows. This is a suggestion. What is so cool is you can go over and open the window or close the window any darn time you like. Some of the windows are um, just on little levers. Some are on, um, uh, uh, some are on cranks. There's a, there's a few very high ones on a little electronic device. And so those windows, um, they're being opened and closed a lot. 
um, the analysis that Arup did um, for what the standard would be um, for the country um, is actually somewhat higher. California is the strictest energy code in the United States. We're um, just doing the passive techniques and um, just good basic engineering. We're down um, 50% and then um, building and saving about 70% um, of energy use to a comparable top code building in California. We're going to talk about water for a moment because we're, we're interested in resources. The committee said, you know, we're really concerned about water. What reservoir does the water for San Francisco and the peninsula come from? Hetch Hetchy in the Sierra. Anybody look recently at the website for the California Center for Climate Change? This is basic business, basic academic research to support the, the, the economy of California. You look at the projections for the Sierra snowpack, in a few decades there's not much left. There's going to be rain in the Sierra in the summer, there's going to be flooding, and in the spring and summer the snowmelt that we now all rely on is not going to be there. These are the three pipes that, that virtually all of the water to, to mar large parts of the peninsula and San Francisco come through from Hetch Hetchy. You know, talk about vulnerability. So we, you know, we made some steps. We, we wanted to store um, rainwater and the like, and that was, that was one battle we did lose. Um, but the waterless urinals work really well. And uh, 45,000 gallons a year just from those little devices. You know, one thing I want to go back to, there was a vice president of the college that um, really stuck his neck out for this project. He, he'd just take a big breath and support us most of the time. And uh, his favorite phrase to us was, well, the leader is the bleeder. And then he'd kind of, you know, just feel a sense of resignation and give us approval for something. And he gave us approval for the waterless urinals as long as we still put in and paid for all the plumbing for a standard flush valve. So, you know, that, that's why I call this a transition building. There's so much stuff like that that makes, you know, from my point of view, wow, we waste a lot of money on that. But that was the, the kind of process and politics that's, in, that's involved. And one thing I want to show here, just the acoustical quality of the building. You know, we don't have a false ceiling. Can't stand false ceilings. And if you can barely see some little kind of dot, dot, dot rows, we used a kind of metal decking that has uh, perforations in it that's very good for um, absorbing sound. So we just kept very clean um, and avoided a lot of extra finished materials, and that was one of the money-saving aspects of the project. I'm going to take you for a few minutes through some construction. This is a basic brace frame, steel frame building, the most common kind of construction in commercial buildings in California. You know, that's one of the other messages that's really cool. This stuff is basic. This is using standard components. You know, all, virtually all structural steel like this is, is, has very high recycled content. So sometimes people say, well, our building uses recycled steel. Yeah, well, every building does. Um, this is that west, this is the far west end of the west wing. And um, get a sense of just a very narrow side with, and it has no windows in it. Inside, one of the things that is really, really was a concern to us one of the most common kinds of construction in California for commercial is a steel frame and then, um, and then exterior walls of, of metal studs. So these, you can have up to easily a quarter of the wall surface being steel framing, steel studs, displacing insulation, 
And is steel a good insulator of heat or cold? Or is it, is it a good conductor of heat and cold? It's fabulous, right? Maybe, maybe uh, several hundred times that of wood. So one of the things we knew is we wanted to put on the outside of the building a, uh, a layer of extruded polystyrene to, to essentially be a, um, uh, a thermal break to, to losing heat from the steel. You know, in a lot of the calculations done for buildings, that's just ignored, that, that there are things like the steel that is, that is, uh, letting, uh, that is uh, letting energy through. And, you know, one thing, this, 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 if we really kind of strain ourselves, the ductwork all through construction, a lot of measures for air quality, all the ductwork during construction had plastic and, and uh, coverings at the end so that all the grit and grime of construction was not put into the, uh, the ductwork, and then we just blow it out over people for the next um, few months and years. One of my favorite things is the skylights had splays of, so that, uh, and this was one of you know, Don's other really great points when he said, um, that's going to spread light much, much better. The construction workers on a project like this are moved from project to project. Maybe they're working on a project for a few weeks, maybe a month or two. It sometimes could be a few days, depending on their specialty and, and the sequence of work. Sometimes they don't even know what kind of project they're working on. They're just doing their trade. And this, you know... This is about education, right? This is a building it teaches. Maybe it should teach everybody. So we found out that it was a kind of contractual requirement that all of the uh, construction workers had to see a video on safety. And so with a, with a few uh, contractual arrangements, it became a second requirement that everybody watch a five-minute video that this was a green building. And you won't believe the stories we got back. I mean, it, 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 was, it was just so wonderful. Uh, construction worker would say to us, you know, I went home and I uh, told my kids I'm working on a green building. I said, kids, you know what that is? And the kids say, yeah, Dad, we know what a green building is. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, Dad, we're really proud of you. And uh, he says, yeah, my kids are proud of me. I'm working on a green building. So this is the kind of thing that this, that this process makes possible. While the carpets were being installed, while the painting was going on, it smelled like fresh air. So we put a lot of effort into the right um, carpets and, uh, and paints. Uh, some of the painters uh, and carpet installers told us, this is the first time I just haven't had a little, little headache when I'm working because I'm just used to working in all that garbage. Commissioning. This is really a crucial part of the construction process where sensors are, um, how the controls work. It's, it's not unfortunately part of, of what the normal review process is and the like. So there's an outside firm that's brought in to, uh, to do special analysis of that. And this was Rumsey engineers doing that work. Now finished materials is something that's always really exciting because um, there's a lot of chance to use recycled materials. There's a lot of chance to um, be really careful about those light materials and the like. And I've brought a few of them from the project. I'm going to put them over here on the table, and afterwards, if people want, they, they can look at them. The main, the main message I have about, about all these materials is there's no right material. It's a matter of critical thinking. Some of the, some of the materials that we used, I don't feel that good about now. Um, uh, most of them I do, but your job is, is to ask questions and be critical thinkers not because you saw a magazine article or somebody said this, this, was, was, this was a great green material. 
So what do we have here? The carpeting was, there are many good companies making carpeting. That was from Mohawk, no PVC, recycled content. Uh, this was carpet tile. So um, there was no adhesives and the like. And see, it's relatively light. You know, we had all that you can imagine. That went on through many meetings, and, and particularly many people said, there is no way there's going to be light carpet like that. There's been no problem with the light carpet. And you see, it's a pretty clever pattern. Um, but this, this thing, for the next 10 years, you know, we are in an emergency situation. So things that we can do to make a completely building completely daylit, we've got to do that. And most of the stuff we do to do that, absolutely no um, no cost. There's no cost to change the color of these things. And I get in trouble for this a lot. People say, oh, you know, we can't have these light materials. You know, of course, you have freedom in this, but this is not just business as usual. So, so thinking about the lightness, um, all the casework, there's a lot of casework. It's usually just, just packed full of formaldehyde. I mean, it's bad stuff for you. There's great products now. Um, Medite, no formaldehyde, and, and this is, you know, all the walls lined with this. Um, and then there's, there's a, a, a veneer over that. The insulation is um, it's a sprayed cellulose. It's this. It's uh, recycled newspapers with borate. It's inflammable. And uh, it, just, it just gets sprayed around all the wiring, everything. It's not like fiberglass bats that don't get in the right place most of the time. Um, we wanted some products from California. And I specifically said, I want California um, granite on the countertops. And you, you know how this works? This, anybody's going to be on a building committee. Here's how this works. Somebody's working on the specifications. They cut and paste from a previous project. I swear to you, the final specification that I got through to review had the granite coming from Greece because somebody cut and pasted. And, you know, I think, why do I have to spend so much time on this kind of stuff? And we finally made it sure this supported California quarry workers in Raymond, California. This is Sierra White. And uh, it's one of the great things for kids to say, find a native California stone in this building. Now, the, the toilet partitions are made from you know, recycled uh, water bottles. I don't think I would, I don't know if I'd do that again. It's, uh, all these things have pros and cons. I don't want to get in that debate, but they all, they all can be debated. There's a very small amount of linoleum. Um, uh, it's made of... Um, you know, flax, linseed oil, um, wood, uh, wood sawdust. It's a very small amount. Um, if you promise that you get no help and no clues, um, the first person to find this material in the Kirsch Center, I will take out to lunch. Um, but you, have, you do have to sign your life away that you have not gotten a hint from anyone. Um, it's, it's very hard to find is all I can say. Um, the, the tiles in the toilets um, are, are, uh, are made with uh, recycled, crushed automobile windshields. This is the kind of thing I want to warn you about. Um, there was a lot of excitement about this. This was a new green material a few years ago. What's that called? It's called downcycling. Isn't there better use for, for glass, very, very energy-intensive material? So this is the kind of questioning we're always going through. Um, uh, just because it's recycled doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea. And uh, many of the countertops are, um, they're pressed sunflower seed hulls. It's a really cool product. And uh, it's, it's at many of the counters, and it's just a conversation. People, pe people say, what is this? And then they just get into the whole question of, 
of uh, different kind of building materials. And finally, you know, I've already shown you this, the Mecca shade, EcoVail is a new product. These shades used to be made out of PVC. Don's wife got sick when he took the materials home to, to kind of review the different, the different uh, weaves in them just because of this a little sample outgas. So they've, this, they've done a fabulous job in coming up with a new PVC-free product. Remember, you can see the outdoors with that. So the students have occupied the this, this, this was open about a little more than two years ago. And when students come in, there's, there's some tours that other students give to, to, to orient the, the, the new students. And new students look around and say, I get it. It's, I mean, it's really cool. The students know it's their building, and they know other students help them uh, help make it possible. If you go there, though, you've got to be careful just to sort of sometimes stay out of the way because it is an exciting place. Um, the, the, when, when teachers do lectures, it's maximum 20 minutes. The kids are in small groups. They are in, in uh, individual study. There's just all this activity going along. Plus, one of the very um, central ideas was that there'd be a, just all kinds of mix of disciplines. So there's students studying out in the maxes. Classes are environmental studies, but it's also open to many of the kind of classes in the, uh, in the college. So you may be going down a hall, and you're going to hear a math class, you're going to hear a physics class, you're going to hear an English class. You know, one week they're talking about the, the novels of Jane Austen, the next week you're hearing about them talk about uh, the writing of Isabel Allende. And um, this, this particular area, you have to get there really early in the morning. Um, one day Buddy said, um, you know, we need a 1950s diner booth. And so there it is. Um, all kinds of mini um, theater seating. This is a small group of students. You know, keep in mind, this is circulation. Other people are going by. Everybody loves it. It's, it's uh, you know, in concept, sometimes it's hard to get across. But uh, in reality, uh, it's been amazingly successful. This is one of the, the regular lecture classrooms. This is what lectures are like. You know, people, people are um, in a, you know, just much more relaxed and uh, into learning mode. And I think I mentioned there are all kinds of programs now for students to actually run the building. There's leadership programs, mentoring programs. These are all students who are running the resource center um, and, uh, uh, and setting up mentoring programs. I love discussion about costs. This building cost exactly the same as any other community college building in Cupertino and Silicon Valley at this time. It was a little more than $300 a square foot. Um, I, I got a call about a year ago from a, a very earnest young man back east who was doing a report for a major energy think tank, and he wanted to know what was the extra cost for going green on this building. And so I said, there's no extra cost. He said, oh, no, that can't be true. There's always an extra cost. And he was very wanted to promote green, but his whole idea is that we had to show people how much extra cost. So I do get in trouble when I say, well, you know, we, we didn't want to give up um, uh, having non-toxic materials, um, daylight and the sun, so we just traded off other things. You know, that's one of my other hobbies. Is I, it's so fun to look at buildings, and there's all kinds of wonderful things on them that might not be necessary. So are we, are we in a mode to make some trade-offs? We're not asking for extra budget. We're just asking for a fluid process where we can do trade-offs, and that's part of this committee grassroots process. In this case, there was no question. Of course, we're going to simplify it 
um, eliminate a lot of extra interior finish materials, which actually makes it a lot more beautiful and, uh, and inviting. So um, cost is main, mainly a matter of trade-offs, not adding money. Who's heard of the LEED Green Building Rating System? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a valiant effort by the U.S. Green Building Council to, and, and their main motivation is what they call to transform the market. Um, I'm not a fan of LEED because, um, frankly, we can do a much better job if we're left to our own devices, but I do respect it for uh, its ability to educate and, um, and help uh, people become more familiar with, its, um, with, with a lot of green building tenants. There are many times when I argue against getting a point in lead because I know the standard that that point was made on, uh, was, was made based on, was a group of the manufacturers um, of that realm of product getting together. They, they find the lowest performing, lowest quality product of that, of that realm, and that becomes the standard. That's the way many standards are done. So recently, this is not in this building, but another project, there was a very small company that uh, had a kind of carpeting that was all U.S. made, no pesticides, was all wool, supporting small growers. And the president of the company told me, you know, we can't afford to go through that certification system. So all these things require critical thinking. LEED has its benefits. We were required by, by, um, by contract to have a LEED silver certification. There's levels from uh, certified silver, gold, platinum. And... We were required to do silver. We're now at the, at the high, uh, high gold end on this. But the committee said, you know, we don't care about lead. We're going to do our mission. What were the lessons from this building? Um, as the design architect, I know better than anybody so many of its flaws. You know, there's so many things we could have done better, so many things we could have just, um, uh, you know, been more careful about. Uh, but that being said... Um, the students just embraced it. You remember I, saw, I showed you that campus? Um, this a little, it's a 10 minutes walk to this building. Between classes, the students come down here to hang out. I mean, that's one of the most gratifying things to me. The daylighting, you, you feel great. I mean, one of the things I would have done better, we would have had light on two sides of a room in many places. Too many places we had light um, on just one side of a room. That we would definitely improve. Um, the, the whole social dynamic in the maxes and the circulation that was very fluid left a lot of ability for people to go to um, uh, just different study areas. There's literally dozens of different kinds of study areas. There's dozens of areas to study daylighting in different ways. I think one of the other lessons that um, some of the engineers at Arup recently told me um, was that, and, and this is a very small building for like a company like Arup, they're a major international engineering company, I was sometimes embarrassed to call them because our little tiny, you know, two-story college building. And they said to me, Dave, we've used so many lessons from this little building. Um, many of the mechanical systems, the radiant cooling system in the California Academy of Sciences is based on what they learned on this building. They're using lessons from this building all over the world. So never think that maybe your project is too small. You know, as long as you have that motivation that you're, um, you're going to learn from it, that you're going to push as far as you can. Now, I want to give you an update, you know, because this building created a lot of momentum in the Environmental Studies Department. As classes started, by the way, classes um, in Environmental Studies um, increased uh, in, in, in enrollment several hundred percent, about 300 percent when this was open. And this is some of the things they weren't, uh, they, weren't, they weren't prepared for. And I guess another lesson is 
so many people came to visit that the staff was just blown away. They, they had to have students you know, give tours, and like the students made, made up the tour, um, the tour brochures and gave tours. But the biggest project that, um, that Julie Phillips, who, who had the key idea for this, then went on to and has said to me many times, this building gave her and the rest of her um, teachers and many of the students the momentum to focus on one of the critical wildlife concerns that they had in the South Bay, which was wildlife migration, wildlife corridors, as climate change, plant biomes change, there's going to be a lot of movement of wildlife. And they identified that an area south of San Jose called the Coyote Valley is the final possible area for a major wildlife corridor linking the coast range along the Pacific to the inner mountain range in the Diablo Mount Hamilton area. The possibility of, of bridges across 101, of some other techniques, um, would be very important. That area has been slated for one of the largest developments in Northern California, a vast new city of sprawl, the kind of development that you know, is, is now 10, 20 years old. The students working with Fish and Game retired people, fish and game people on their spare time, so they were, they were given a lot of great mentoring, spent endless hours, some of them spent every weekend tracking wildlife through that area. And when they went into the EIR hearings, they were able to bring out that the very famous, very pricey consulting firm had done a drive-by. They drove up to the area, looked at it. They did a lot of cut and paste from previous projects. And when it came out that the students, under the direction of Fish and Game, had actually done better research than the outside consulting PhDs, that EIR process was stopped. And students had a major victory in you know, some possibilities there. If you were listening to the radio or TV last Thursday, you would have heard KGO, Regional News, the developer behind the new city at... Uh, South of San Jose, Cody Valley, has announced that they are withdrawing from the project uh, because of the economy. You know, it doesn't matter what. That's, that's fine with me. And, um, uh, and then news went on to say that environmentalists have said that this might be a good area for open space. You know, in this battle, it's not completely won, but it is a victory beyond belief. So, um, I, I, you know... Here's the students making their plan for that area. And uh, here's one of the residents down that area. I mean, there are actually elk on the hillsides waiting, I swear to you, waiting to cross. I mean, they know, right? They know. And you know, this is the other part of my message that the wildlife corridor integrally ties to a green building. They are not separate. You know, the specialization is, is one of the major things we all got to be watchful for. So um, I want to thank you all for listening. And uh, Craig, do you, do you want to take this over? And Craig, you know... All right, thank you. Yeah, and before, before, before questions, I, I just want to point out. Remember I told you that um, in the beginning there was a 20-year-old community college student who raised the money in student government to make this possible. Have I told you that? Sarah? There she is. <laughs> Raise your hand, Sarah. Raise your hand. 
And remember I told you about the fellow who was so instrumental in making all the early design decisions and making this project possible? Buddy? Buddy, hand up, please. <laughs> Any, anybody else here from De Anza College? Great, great. I mean, the De Anza College students walk on water as far as I'm concerned. There's nobody like them. And anybody else here from the design team? Any of the firms that worked on the project? Okay, our thanks to Dave Deppen for his comments here today. I'm Craig Vassell, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and I'll be moderating today's question period. So what we'll do is pass the microphone around. If you, want, if you have a question, raise your hand, and you'll get a microphone. And I'll give this one to Dave. We'll have about probably 10 minutes or so for questions, and then after the program is over, of course, you can stay around as long as you want. Who's first question? Yes. I was wondering if you would be able to speak at all to the, um, if you're involved at all in the bidding process that, that green builders have, you know, challenges in facing just other builders that are not green builders. And how does that work in competing in the bidding process? Well, there's different kinds of construction. I mean, just to use this one as an example, this was a public project, and there's just tons of rules about it. So we had to write really detailed drawings and specifications, and those, the bidding was open to really virtually any large contractor. And the, the basic rule is, I mean, the basic way it works is that in, the designers had to get the green parts into the project, because the only way the contractor is going to stay in business is to have the lowest bid and to assume just the kind of worst construction. So it really is, 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 is key that the design documents are there. That's in this kind of institutional realm. Let's say it's a, um, a residential realm or, or where it's, it's more private construction. And I think, I think that's really hitting home for your question that, let's say, a builder who's, who's developing a project that has these green aspects, um, uh, you know, their challenge is first, the public might not be as aware of it. So this whole momentum of people getting more, more and more aware of the screen stuff, I mean, we're just finding more and more. It's a matter of letting people know the possibilities. I have the most, back in Pennsylvania, my family, my, the most conservative sister in the world. She has no interest in any of this stuff. I mean, in fact, you know, really, she, she would think, no, this is, this is bad. This is but, you know, a few years ago, she said to me, well, we're going to be painting and carpeting the new baby's room. What do you think happened? You know, I said, you know, I got to talk to you before you do that. And after a few minutes, her eyes were, you know, just big as saucers. She said, I had no idea. I mean, it's, it's the new baby. Tell me, you know, write all this down. So that's what I find more. It's, it's that ability to let people know, here's what's going on. Because nobody wants to live with toxic materials. You know, nobody wants to, you know, live in that wasteful situation. Does that, does that help a bit? A <laughs> bit. Sounds to me like you're saying, I wanted to know what angles you might have, and it sounds like you're talking about the angles that you approach on an individual project basis. Well, the key thing is if it's this public bid process or if it's private. So you're more thinking of the private sort of situation? Well, they're both, they're both so different because the public bid one, it's all about the documents that you have because you're just going to get the assumption of the lowest bidder. Otherwise, the contractors go to business. If, if they say they want to do a green building of these new ideas, 
they're out because they don't have the low bid. Um, but in a private situation where, I mean, the ideal is we love at the beginning to sit down with a contractor and have a contractor work with us all the way through design. So it's actually a team effort. And in that case, that contractor, um, there'd be a final negotiation, but they really have the job. So contractors that have made a special effort with this, they have an advantage in those situations where the whole group, the team, the owner wants that kind of project. Yes. Right, right. So you mentioned cost uh, being the same investment, uh, which many green builders find as well, or maybe a 1% or 2% extra. But um, what's the savings in operating costs in terms of utilities, lighting, uh, HVAC? Um, because it's not only a same investment, is it not lower operating costs, or is it higher? Uh, well, or the uh, same? No, it's absolutely lower operating costs. So, so in that one diagram of the various bars, one of the simplest ways of thinking of it was just the basic things in the building cut energy use 50%. So right there, we worked within a standard budget, and those, all those energy operating costs went way down. That being said, I think the secret of all this goes way beyond that, because we're in a transition time. We still have the, the opportunity for people to get really excited about this stuff. So, so much um, extra effort was, was brought in. There were AV people for the college who came up with really great new ideas for us because they just wanted to be part of this project and, and got deals for us and the like. So this is kind of a, a short time, this, this, this kind of happy transition. You know, I don't know where it's going to go after that. Uh, but yeah, operating costs are, are, are incredibly less. And then just, uh, is there any tracking of positive health impacts of less uh, absenteeism? Um, is there any carbon credits that go with this that there's value in? Uh, we didn't get, did not get into carbon credits. So we did not track um, health and the like. There's, there's a number of major studies, especially if you go to usgbc.org. They they track those kind of studies. Um, you know, frankly, you might have gotten, you know, there's a sense that this was not an easy road. There were a lot of people who had different views, particularly that this building should never be built. It wasn't planned by the state. So um, given the time we had, um, we didn't have time for extra studies or, or the fees for them. But it's so well documented. And one of my favorites is um, the Hirshong, um, somebody help me out. Hirshong, uh, Buddy, do you remember that old daylighting study? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, this, was, this was amazing. Uh, this was maybe uh, a number of years ago. They studied um, elementary schools around the country. They, um, the only variable was daylighting in the classroom. And um, every other variable was, was, was tracked for us. This peer-reviewed, high-level scientific study 20% higher test scores um, and less absenteeism in the classrooms with the daylighting. I mean, that's what's so nutty about all this stuff. This is so basic. And when we kind of constantly have to keep proving this stuff, it, uh, you know, it amazes me. Because as people, you know, all of us as people, when we pull away from whatever is popular or, or what society wants, any of those kind of things, and we're just people, and we, we think about, you know, I really like that room, I don't like that room. All the stuff we're talking about here, we all know. But since World War II, there's been a, a, you know, such a, a momentum for various reasons for a whole other kind of building. So we're having to undo a lot of stuff that's, um, we know in our bodies is, is not what we 
what we like. Yeah, next question. Just interrupt for a second here. Okay, I want to make a radio reminder. I'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to Anatomy of a Green Building with Dave Deppen. Now, we have about two minutes left, so there's time for only one last question. So let's take one more question, please. So what about, where does it go from here? I'm wondering some of the new, um, the, the revolution in nanotechnology, how does that play into green building, into the anatomy of a green building? John, you live in Silicon Valley. You know about these things. I know not a thing about these things. And frankly, for myself, what I find myself doing is just simplifying. All I'm doing is, is making it even simpler. I mean, to me, this is a pretty complicated building. It's like, yikes, yeah, it's complicated. So that's kind of my interest. Um, and I think there's going to be all kinds of frontiers. I mean, and, and, and you know, what you just mentioned, I think, is, is one of them. Um, you'd be able to answer it better than me. Well, I, there was, uh, you know, there's a Richard Myers uh, <clears throat> uh, church in Rome that they accidentally they were trying to come up with a clean concrete and they put uh, titanium dioxide in it. And they discovered that it also uh, decomposes some pollutants in the air. And just by accident. Just, so, in other words, titanium dioxide is in makeup, it's in paint, you know. And, and so that's a, that's a nanotechnology. It's a photocatalytic element. It reacts with the sun and decomposes uh, pollutants. And I'm wondering, there's other uh, nanotechnologies uh, out there, and I'm wondering how that would play into the future of green building. It seems like there's some, some possibilities there. I, I definitely think so. I mean, we're going yeah. to be, I think this is a broad movement to try all kinds of things, and one sort of sister um, approach is biomimicry. People, the scientists doing research in how we can learn from natural forms and natural systems to, for, for buildings and propellers and, and, and sails and, and the like all to work better. So I'm really excited about all of the research. And, you know, we are so lucky in the Bay Area because the world is looking at us. You know, that's, that's a really cool thing about us. You know, we can do some things that seem, um, you know, well, make an effort. And the world is saying, whoa, they're doing that in California. Maybe we should try that too. <laughs> so I just want to just leave all of you with that thought that um, wherever you go with this, it can have um, really important impact. Thanks. Okay, our thanks to Dave Deppen for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here and our radio, on the radio. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 103rd year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. <laughs>